another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream, you can holler. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it is almost always the case from my personal mobile studio, my 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI, as I make my commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Folks, uh, once again, I'm on the road. This is episode 140. This is Thursday. It is February something. I'm not sure if it's February 12th. It is Thursday, February 12th. 2009, that means for all you men, tomorrow is Valentine's Day Eve. And what that means is if you want to send your wife, honey, girlfriend, significant other something at her office, it needs to be there at her office by tomorrow. Now, I actually encourage you to think about doing just that instead of giving her a card and a flower on Valentine's morning if you want to improve your social life and your relationship. Uh, And I was a dutiful husband, and I sent something, I can't say what because my wife actually listens to my show, uh, to my wife that will be there tomorrow, and that's just my public service announcement for all my fellow men out there, and uh, they like to get stuff at work, guys, it's more, you know, to them, it's, and, and don't take this wrong, women, because you know it's true, they like to be seen being taken care of, and I don't mean like, you know, all things are cared for, but, but taken care of, loved, what have you, in front of their girlfriends, and most women work with, with other women that they're, you know, very close to, so. So, um, if, if you want to get maximum bang for your buck, have something delivered to the office. Probably should have told you that on Monday. But, you know, hey, at least I came through for you eventually. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's uh, get on with the show today. Um, we're going to actually talk about something really different. So, at least we've never talked about it before. I'm going to talk about snakes today. And I'm going to talk about venomous snakes in the United States, what to do if you do happen to get bit, how to avoid getting bit, um, and how to identify what's out there that's actually dangerous. And there's, I, I would say, about 1% to 3% of snake bites in the United States, uh, venomous bites, where venomation actually happens, are what do you call a legitimate bite, which means, and I'll tell you about my legitimate Bite, where you step over something and onto a snake and it bites you, or somebody's working in a barn and reaches behind something and a snake's back there and they get bit. Uh, the other 97% come from idiots who go messing around with a snake, so we're going to talk about not doing that today. But before we do, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let this bailout thing alone. I'm not going to wail on it all day today like I did yesterday. The show's not going to be all about it. And this is going to take me probably about two minutes to cover. So if it's not your thing, hit the fast-forward button. But try not to. Because remember, I want you to stay mad about this. And I want you to understand how much of our money is being wasted. Well, they've still been negotiating this thing between the House and the Senate now. And our three repugnant Republicans, uh, Collins, Specter, and Snow, uh, we need to target Specter for elimination from office. That's becoming a consensus on the forum of one way we can make a statement about this. This guy's up for re-election in two years. And if we all band together across the United States, we can get rid of this guy and primary him out and keep you know, 
not give that seat over to another uh, to another Democrat who's going to do all specter wood and worse. Maybe we can get a, somebody up there to balance things. And you know, I'm not a Republican shill, folks, but I'd like to have extremes on both sides of the aisle as close to 50-50 as possible, so they can do as little as possible. So let's try to put some balance back into uh, Washington. Uh, but what I talked about yesterday was how much wind energy we could generate with $837 billion. And um, Stein on the blog said my numbers were off, but he didn't tell me where, so I can't correct them. I actually don't think they were off. I put a lot of time into running those numbers. And, uh, you know, the only thing you can say is that the number of uh, cost per generated kilowatt hour that I got from General Electric of $0.04 cents, uh, is inaccurate. Maybe it's higher. Well, I think if you do something on that scale, the price would actually go down. The more more you do, the lower the price. So I'm pretty comfortable with saying that uh, in a 10-year period, $837 billion would pay us back $400 billion and give us massive independence from foreign energy by buying windmills with it. But let's look at something a lot closer to home. I've heard people say, why don't we just give the American people the money and let them spend it? Well, remember, we're being sold with this bill, builds infrastructure and green energy. So once again, let's look at how much money we could buy with green energy with this investment. Now, the bill is now cut down to seven. $790 billion. This is supposed to make us feel better than the $837 billion or the previous $900 billion high and all this pork that's supposedly been cut out of it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, first, before I tell you what we could buy today with today's leftover money, um, I want to tell you what pork was cut out of the bill. One of the biggest cuts in the bill was that the average taxpayer was getting a tax cut of about $500 a year. You're now getting a tax cut of $400 a year. So we've taken each taxpayer's tax cut and reduced it by $100. And that's where a big portion of this reduction from 837 down to 790 came from. Uh, and just so you know, that will result for the average middle-income, lower-middle-income American taking home about $13 a week more. So that was the big tax cut they were getting. Don't spend it all in one place. But, yeah, that's what they cut. They cut the tax break part of the bill, believe it or not. So we're left with $790 billion. So let's see what Jack could buy America today with $790 billion. Um, I've had uh, an actual quotation to put a 2-kilowatt grid-tied solar system on the roof of my house. 2 kilowatts. Before tax rebates and everything, gross price is right at $10,000. Now, I've only had one guy quoted. I haven't beaten up anybody on price or what have you. So I know it's reasonable to say that a cost per 2 kilowatt unit solar-mounted grid-type system can be done for $2,000. I also know if I'm buying like 10 million of them, I'm going to get a better deal. But let's just stick with 10K, 2 kilowatts, roof of a single-family home. So I said, well, how many... Can we buy at $10,000 apiece? Now, this is simple math, and Stein can't say my math is wrong. You take $790 billion, you divide it by $10,000, you get $79 million. $79 million. Well, there's $300 million people in America. Obviously, if we get $79 million solar panel, 2 kilowatt unit, it's, it's seven, not $79 million, right? It's $79 million 2 kilowatt systems. Two kilowatt solar systems, right? Seventy nine million can't give everybody in America one, but everybody in America doesn't have a house. So how many single family homes are there? And I checked that out and the best I can tell is there's roughly hundred and nineteen to hundred and twenty million single family homes in America. Said so, but how many of them are owner occupied? 
And what I mean by that is they're not owned by a landlord who's renting it to a tenant. They're not part of a business. It's a homeowner who lives in his house, owns his own home, and it's somewhere, it's hard to find this number and be accurate with it, somewhere between 72 and 76 million single-family, owner-occupied homes in America. Which means... <laughs> For $790 billion after we screw the taxpayer of his tax cut, we could still put a 2-kilowatt grid-tied solar system on the home of every single family owner-occupied structure in America. All 70, you know, 2 to 76 million of them. We have enough money. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you if we're spending billions, hundreds of billions, 790 billion, and we talk to all the people that make solar panels and all the people that know how to install them and say, you guys got to do better than 2 kilowatts, I bet you they could get it up to 3 with that kind of quantity of purchase. And what would happen is homeowners would then easily be able to say, well, I want to make mine four. I'll pay the difference. And all new homes would end up being built with these things because you'd have to to compete with the existing structures. And we'd end up with solar systems on every home in America that actually gets hit with the sun. That would, <laughs> that would reduce our dependence on foreign oil. That would get America going green. That would certainly create jobs. It would certainly reduce expenses for Americans and put more money in their pocket, which could then be invested, saved, and spent in the American economy. So I'm not saying we should do it. I'm just saying, do you think it's a better investment, America? Do you think it's a better freaking investment than the pork barrel crap that they just shoved down our throat and told us was going to stimulate the economy. Which one would you rather buy if you had no choice? A gun to your head, you must spend the $790 billion. All right, let's let that go. Let's move off of politics and economics, and let's get on with the show about snakes. All right, so if you are like a lot of Americans, you may have a very uh, distasteful view of snakes. You might look at snakes, and maybe you're one of the people that were brought up in a religious household and taught that the serpent was the symbol of the devil. Now, you go back and read Adam and Eve, it never says the serpent was Satan. It talks about the serpent as the serpent and the serpent alone, and it's also because the serpent strikes fear in the hearts of men. That's why the symbology is there. The snake is not the devil, folks. All right, The snake is a creature like any other on planet Earth. The snake is a creature that has a purpose. If we got rid of them all, you would see a plague of rodents like you cannot imagine. And odds are you have no idea how many snakes live in your backyard. And I don't mean directly in your backyard. I mean right around where you live. Uh, it's probably quite a, quite a startling number if anybody ever did a real census for you and told you how many there are. Now here's the good news. The vast majority of them are non-venomous. They can't hurt you. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how you identify venomous and non-venomous today. And here's the good news for that. There are only four types of snakes in the United States that are native to the United States that pose any threat to man. 
Now, there is a gotcha in here. There are people that keep, you know, Gaboon Vipers and Australian Taipans and, you know, Indian Cobras and crap like that. And one of those people could have an escape animal get out. So you can't just go, it's not one of the four jack sets, so it's safe. You have to identify it anyway to know that. And you really shouldn't do that unless you're experienced. You should just stay away from it. But, you know, 99.9999999% of the time, if it's not one of the four types of snakes, not species, but types of snakes that I'm about to give you, it's completely harmless if you're seeing it in North America. These are rattlesnakes. Now, there's about 16 species of rattlesnakes. But a rattlesnake is not difficult to identify. They all have a very similar shape of the body. Most of them, unless they're real young and haven't shed yet uh, a few times, have rattles. Uh, they behave a certain way. They have the large, you know, pit viper-shaped head, etc. So if it's not a rattlesnake, step one, you're not dealing with a venomous snake. Next, next thing is, is it a water moccasin or cottonmouth? Cottonmouth is the proper common name. I won't give you the Latin name because you won't care or remember it. Um, but the cottonmouth is the proper common name. In some parts of the country, we call them water moccasins. Again, this is a very distinctive animal. It's one of the most misidentified animals. There's more harmless snakes killed because somebody thought it was a cottonmouth than any other snake in America. Because if it's in the water and it's thick body and it's black, we're going to kill it. That's that's how a lot of, you know, kind of, I hate to say this if you're one of them, that's how a lot of ignorant rednecks think. It must be a water moccasin. It's in the water. Not the case. But if you identified it's not a water moccasin, then the next logical thing was, is it a copperhead? Okay? The copperhead is actually very closely related to the water moccasin, believe it or not. They're also a very distinctive snake. Now, I'm not going to describe the, the, the way these snakes look. You can go look them up online and very quickly learn the identifying characteristics of these three pit vipers in America, which are the three most dangerous snakes that you're likely to encounter in America because they're the most likely to bite you and envenomate you even if you don't mess with them if you happen to get a legitimate bite. Again, I'm going to tell you about my legitimate copperhead bite in just a minute. The fourth is called a coral snake. It is only in certain parts of the United States. There's a limit to how far north it will go. They look a lot like what's called a scarlet king snake or a scarlet snake uh, or certain types of milk snakes. And they are red, black, and yellow. Very beautiful little animals. Um... The, the way you identify the color patterns, and I'm hesitant to do this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. There's a mnemonic for it that's very easy to remember. Red on black, good for Jack. Red touches yellow, killer fellow. All right? And it, it is that symbol. Plus, um, coral snakes will have rings that completely circle the body, where scarlet snakes generally have more like a saddle. Now, there are some milk snakes that have complete concentric rings. They're not native to North America, Central America, South America. Sinaloan milk snakes are an example. But they still follow the color rule. Red on black, good for jack. Red on yellow, coral snake, killer fellow. All right? Now, here's the thing about coral snakes. Very small mouths, very non-aggressive creatures, People barehand them, which means pick up a venomous snake without any protection, without really worrying about getting bit, and don't get bit all the time. Stupid. Don't do it. 
probably venomized, in fact I would say venomized, ounce for ounce, most venomous creature in North America, other than the black uh, widow spider, brown recluse spider. All right? It was very, very bad if you get bit by a coral snake, but there's very, very few bites because they have such a small mouth, they really need to chew the venom in. But to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, the other three snakes are pit vipers, all right? and they have a large amount of venom that they eject into the system with a mix of hematoxic and neurotoxic effects. Some are more neurotoxic, some are more hematoxic. Coral snakes are very, very neurotoxic. Neurotoxic means attack of the central nervous system. The venom is very, very similar to most cobra venoms. So leave red, yellow, and black, and you don't know, leave it alone. And they will, no one steps on a coral snake and gets bit in the leg. They're too small of an animal. It's always the hands that people are bit on coral snakes because they pick them up. You don't pick them up. You, you you almost have no chance. So I'm not going to talk much about coral snakes from here on out. And if they're not native to your area, you're not likely to see one because they can't handle the cold, even just overwintering and hibernating very well. They're a southern species. Your three other snakes, the most dangerous of them are various forms of rattlers, which you're probably thinking, duh, but, but it is. And there are some rattlers that are more dangerous than others. Eastern and Western Diamondbacks. Uh, the big problem with them is they're very large snakes. Even when they're relatively short still, they start to fill out and get very stocky. They can inject an awful lot of venom very quickly. Uh, so it's a volume of venom, not really how toxic the venom is. Probably the most toxic and most life-threatening snake in the United States from the rattlesnake world, as far as its toxicity of venom, is mostly only in California, and it's called the Southern Pacific Rattlesnake. If you watch a show called Venom ER, I can't remember the doctor's name, but you'll see a long-haired, ponytail-having, bearded doctor on there that deals with a lot of southern pack uh, bites. And you'll see that the, the that it's really a nasty snake to be bitten by, but if you don't live in southern California, you know, your odds, and they, they do range north out of California and into the desert and all, but it's the California, South California area where most of the bites happen. That's a snake you really don't want to be bitten by. But my point here is you don't want to be bitten by any of them. Uh, just about every form of rattlesnake, just about every form of rattlesnake is considered life-threatening with a bite. Doesn't mean you're going to fall over and die. All these stories are like, I got bit by a rattlesnake and he was dead in about five minutes. Bullshit. Okay, folks? It's crap. It's nonsense. And I'll give you first aid and what to do in a minute. But people, unless they have what's called an anaphylactic reaction, which is the same thing that kills people bitten by bees, don't quickly die from snake bites. At least the species we have here native to the U.S. If you get bit by a gaboon viper or a taipan, I'm assuming you handle venomous snakes on purpose and you're on your own, you should know what you're doing. This is for people dealing with wild animals right now. If you get bit by a cottonmouth, it is considered life-threatening. If it's what's called a wet bite, we'll get to that in a minute too. If you're bit by a copperhead, it's generally not considered life-threatening unless you have an allergic reaction to the venom. Because they inject a slightly milder version of the venom. It's very, very similar, actually, to what a cottonmouth injects, but much smaller quantities than their smaller snakes. My bite was from a copperhead, and I can tell you that even though it's generally considered not life-threatening, it's not fun. The venom is very destructive to the surrounding tissue. Um, I was out fishing. I had just turned 18. I stepped over a blow-down 
uh, which is like a, a branch blown over a trail. It was a very, very large copperhead uh, in the neighborhood of a little over three feet, very thick, old, big snake laying underneath the log, and I stepped on his back, and he bit me in the calf. I don't blame the snake. I can't blame the snake. It was cool out. That's going to make them naturally sluggish. And uh, I was in an area where I knew they were, and I stepped over something without seeing what was on the other side. I made the mistake. He did what a snake was supposed to do. I actually then knew how to handle venomous snakes already. I had kind of a mentor that I grew up with in Florida that had taught me a lot about that. And uh, got a branch and moved the snake. I didn't kill it, uh, even though it had just bit me. And, and obviously, at this point, had envenomated me. And um, moved it well away from the trail and let it go. That tells you how uh, I feel about snakes. Is, you know, will I kill them or not? Only if absolutely necessary. And... Uh, I just walked back to the car. I took off my hip boots, uh, hip waders, if you have large rubber boots that went all the way up. Verified the bite had penetrated all the way through the rubber and into my calf. Two fang marks, uh, quite widespread apart for a copperhead. This was a big snake. Uh, pushed on them, some blood and some discolored fluid came out. That's a bit of venom. We'll talk about first aid in a minute, but you could you could try to suck venom out. You could try to push it out. It doesn't really hurt anything, but generally it doesn't really do much either. Um, the venom, once it's in, begins to spread immediately. It's like being injected with a hypodermic syringe and then trying to push it out. You think you're pushing out venom. Mostly what you're pushing out is blood. Uh, sometimes you will see a bit of venom on your skin, and it's the venom that was left as the fangs were coming out. And uh, if you see that, that means you probably got a lot of venom inside. So I knew I had a, uh, what they call a wet bite, which means the snake did not just hit with his fangs and not inject venom. I knew there was a venom injection. It was starting to swell. It was starting to get painful. Uh, very quickly, actually, I walked back to my car. I drove to a convenience store, went inside, told the lady what happened. She kind of didn't believe me at first, and uh, uh, then she did. She dialed 911 for me. They sent an ambulance. They took me to a hospital in Pine Grove, Pennsylvania. Uh, the doctor looked at it initially and decided that it was probably a rattlesnake bite due to the fang differential, and I had to argue with him about what it was, and eventually he did accept the fact that it was a copperhead. Uh, the antivenom treatment is the same. A lot of times they don't even do antivenom treatment for a copperhead. They treat you for the symptoms and uh, infection and what have you because you don't risk uh, antivenom. Some people are allergic to the horse serum that they make antivenom with. Uh, the, the guy decided that uh, Crofab antivenom, which is what's used for all pit vipers in North America, was probably worth administering uh, to reduce the local effects and to make sure that I didn't have too severe of a reaction to the venom just because of the size of the snake. And they gave me uh, three vials, and to give you an example, for a rattlesnake bite uh, or a cottonmouth bite, a typical dosage would be five vials of venom. Uh, fortunately, because there's so many timber rattlers in the area, the hospital kept antivenom uh, on hand, and I did have a lot of necrosis around the general area, but it pretty well healed, and within about two years, there was no scarring or marking left. What I can tell you, though, is I did not like it, and had my family not had 
insurance, uh, health insurance for catastrophic uh, things where you end up in a hospital, uh, we would have had a bill for about $20,000 from a simple copperhead bite to the back of the leg. So snake bite is not just life-threatening. It's also the potential to lose limbs. People bit on the fingers often lose a finger uh, from the necrosis, which is just the damage to the tissue. So they're very serious. And that's what I want you to understand is that I'm going to tell you right now that no one in modern history has ever died from being bitten by a copperhead. Ever. The only report I can find of some guy that died was around 1890, and he was playing with multiple copperheads, and this guy had to be bitten about 20 times uh, by multiple snakes. Uh, and he did die. At least the newspaper says he died. And the newspaper article is really kind of yellow journalism. Uh, and it talks about him trying to treat himself with whiskey. So this guy was an idiot. So I can't find anybody else ever died from a copperhead. I'm telling you, someone was bit. You don't want it. So, how do we avoid being bit by snakes? Well, the first thing that we do is when we're in areas where snakes might be, we're stepping over things. We don't behave like 18-year-old Jack and not look where our feet are going. We identify where we're going. We also do not stalk around like we're hunting when we're not hunting. Now, the good news is most of the time when you're hunting, it's cooler out. There's less snakes. I was fishing. This was late in the, late in the summer. Actually, very warm days, but it was a cool morning. That's why the snake was sluggish and probably didn't move off of the trail. Uh, but walking with heavy footsteps, creating sound vibra- uh, vibrations in the ground, ground vibrations, is a great way to cause snakes to move away from you before you get there or retreat down a hole. They do not want to be seen by you. Snakes view humans as predators, not prey. When they bite you, it is a defensive bite. They are trying to protect themselves. They're not trying to eat you. They're not trying to kill you. They want you to leave them alone. So if they know you're coming, they generally remove themselves from the area. They cannot hear. Making loud noises will not make snakes move away. If you disbelieve this, go find somebody with a pet snake, because all snakes are the same. Get down right next to it and scream at the snake as loud as you can. It will not move. It cannot hear you. It doesn't have ears. It hears, if you want to call it that, through sensing of vibrations. So loud noises. Being aware of your surroundings. And the number one way to avoid being bitten by a snake is if you do not have proper training on how to handle snakes and you see one, leave it alone. People try to kill them, they get bit. People try to catch them, they get bit. People try to move them, they get bit. Very few people see a snake, there's a snake, I'm not going to bother it, and get bit. Almost never happens. In fact, as soon as you've seen it, you're less likely to get bit if you don't touch it. Because now you know where it is. So you're not going to accidentally grab it or accidentally step on it because it's right over there. Now what if you live in a residential area and you find a great big diamondback rattlesnake in a woodpile in your backyard? What should you do? Well, if you shot it or killed it in some safe way for you, obviously not safe for the snake, Because you knew what to do and you knew how to do it and you've decided this snake cannot stay in my home, I'm not going to call you an ignorant redneck for killing a snake in your backyard. I understand that. You got dogs, you got kids, you got other people to worry about. I understand that. Uh, I would remove the snake. 
And I would take the snake somewhere where it's you know natural habitat for the snake away from people, and I would release it. I would do that because not only do I know how to do that, but I have the equipment with which to do that. Um, I would call somebody like me if I didn't, and I'm actually available for snake removal uh, in the local Dallas-Fort Worth area if somebody needs a snake removed. Uh, I don't advertise that, but quite a few people do know that I'll come with my hooks in my bags and get rid of a snake. All right, um, But there are professionals that do this for a living. You can call animal control and have the animal removed. Those, you know, That's another safe thing to do. And then basically you just need to observe the animal from a safe distance all right, until the animal control people get there. So that when they get there, you can say this is where it is. Odds are it may move and go somewhere and conceal itself. And it's going to be very helpful to them if you're able to say he's under that shed. He went under there. He hasn't come out. Uh, so they know exactly what they're dealing with. Uh, taking a picture of the animal, if you can do it safely, before animal control gets there will help them identify it. Because they may get there and go, that's a rat snake. Leave it alone. It's not dangerous. And, and you may be okay with that. You may say, I still want it out of here. And then they may get rid of it for you. But th- they'll also know for a fact, hey, that's a that's a western diamondback. Or that's, that's, a, that's a red diamond rattler or something. And I'm dealing with something dangerous here when they're trying to find it. Because removal specialists get complacent. Because people call them all the time for rat snakes, corn snakes, and things like that. Uh, bull snakes are often mistaken. A lot of the rat snakes and bull snakes, when they're threatened, these are harmless animals, but they're scared, and they try to make you go away, so they hiss, they puff their head up as big as they possibly can, and they rattle their tail on the leaves or anything else they can to get a rattle. And then people go, that's a rattler! It's, you know, it's not it's pretty easy to tell the difference. Alright? So that's, you know, that's the big thing. Don't touch an animal if you're not trained in watching Steve Irwin or Marlon Perkins on TV is not training in how to handle snakes. I don't handle snakes like Steve Irwin did. I don't even handle snakes like Marlon Perkins did. I don't put my hands on a venomous snake if I go to remove it. I use a hook in a bag and I use a technique uh, that comes from a guy uh, who's just actually a legend in the reptile keeping business. And it's actually embarrassing, but uh, I can't remember his name right now. The book is called The Keeper and the Kept. And he talks, and there's another book called Snakes and Snake Hunting, where he talks about uh, going out and, and, and you know, gathering uh, venomous snakes for the Staten Island Zoo's collection. And his method, which I adopted as my method, is using a bag on a net frame and a hook, and simply using the hook to maneuver the snake into the bag. So you have the bag on a pole with a frame, a loop frame, and you have a bag looped over it, you back the snake into it. Rattlers are very easy to get the back into that bag. And once they're in there, you flip it over a couple times and you twist it, and the snake is in the bag, and you never, ever have to put your hands on the snake. Amazing. And it takes a little bit of practice and a little bit of knowledge, but once you get it down, you realize that people that get bit during, you know, that are supposed to be experts, it's ego. It's, I want to touch the animal, and I understand that. There's a certain mystique. But if you don't get close enough for fangs to reach your body, you don't get bit. And if you're dealing with a six-foot snake that can strike about four and a half to five feet, believe it or not, in total striking distance, and you have a seven-foot pole, you're generally pretty safe. I don't want you to go do it. I'm just telling you how I do it and why I do it and the rationale behind it. If you want to learn to deal with venomous animals, go find a mentor. Do not immediately begin to act 
watch, observe the mentor. And if the mentor looks dangerous, find a new mentor. Because just because the guy's been doing it for years doesn't mean he knows what he's doing. Or doesn't mean it's the way that you should be doing things. Look for somebody that will teach you to deal with these animals without touching them if you want the skill set of being able to deal with it. Um, now, first aid. If you're bit by a rattlesnake, moccasin, or copperhead, I'm just going to leave coral snakes out of this. You basically do the same thing anyway. The biggest thing that you can do is, one, do not panic, and two, immediately go to a hospital. Never assume you've gotten a dry bite. I don't care. If you know it was a venomous animal or you think it was a venomous animal and it bit you, go to the hospital. For most people, if you can safely kill the snake, you're probably better off doing it. Unless you are like me, and I put the snake's life out of my own, honestly. I didn't want to kill it. I knew if I put it in some kind of container and left it alive, they would probably kill it. And I knew enough about snakes that I knew I could convince them what had bitten me, that I knew what it was. But a lot of times there's hesitation to treat a bite without identifying the species. Just because it's a rattler, well, was it a southern Pacific rattler or a, a red diamond rattlesnake? All right. And yes, red diamond is a type of rattlesnake. I'm not making up a species there. Um, because one is highly neurotoxic and one is highly hematoxic. And instead of just throwing crofab at it, what you're probably going to do is go with a very specific strain of uh, antivenom with certain species. So killing the snake, putting it in some kind of container, and bringing it with you is probably a good idea. Once killed, that snake should be handled with sticks or poles anyway. Dead snakes can kill you. Dead snakes can envenomate you. Dead snakes aren't always dead. But bringing the animal for positive identification is a good idea. If it's a limb, keep it lower than your heart. If it's your arm, don't hold it up in the air. Hold it low. Applying a very light pressure bandage above the bite, between the bite and the heart, can be helpful. This is not a tourniquet. If you put a tourniquet on a, uh, a pit viper bite, you will probably end up losing your arm or your finger or your hand or wherever you've been bitten. Because you're going to so stop the blood flow there. What you're trying to do is slow down. You're not even stopping. You're slowing down the spread of the venom through the lymphatic system, not the circulatory system at this point. So a very light pressure bandage. You should be able to put a finger underneath it. Can be helpful. Some doctors say not to do that at all. I'll leave it up to you what you want to do. If you can suck or squeeze some of the venom out, that can be a little bit helpful. But again, it's one of those things that doesn't really hurt anything. It's probably not going to help. Treating the area for localized swelling with, with something with like a cool compress uh, can be beneficial simply for relieving pain. But the big thing to do is get to the hospital. Get to the hospital quickly. When you get to admissions, immediately say, I have been bit by a venomous snake. I think it is a pygmy rattlesnake, a eastern diamondback. We have it in a bucket. I need immediate treatment. All right. And if you tell them that calm and clear, generally you will get very, very quick treatment and you won't sit in a waiting room with a snake bite. It's happened to people. And it's usually people that start freaking out and they're like, oh, this guy got, you know, he's, he's alright. You know, he's overreacting. When you're calm and assertive, uh, you're generally taken more seriously in emergency rooms. And that's with any injury. Or at least if the person with you is calm and assertive. So hopefully somebody's with you. If not, you may have to drive yourself there. Um... 
you're probably better off if you know where a hospital is and you're close to it, driving or having someone drive you there. The big reason that I stopped and called for an ambulance um, was I knew the hospital was close. They would have the ambulance there fast. And I was feeling very, very sick, and I started thinking I might wreck my car rather than get there safely. So I ended up leaving my car at this convenience store. Um, I was on the phone with 911 and almost immediately could hear uh, the ambulance. That's how close this area was, so I was lucky. Um, Had it been further away, I probably would have tried to talk somebody at the convenience store to driving me to the hospital. Uh, It's probably quicker. So you want to get there as quick as possible. So an ambulance is something you do uh, when you have no other choice or when it seems like it's a bigger risk. Or if, like in my case, since I was bit by a copperhead, I thought, I'm not going to die from this thing, and they're pretty quick, so this is probably a good idea. But get to the hospital as soon as possible. Uh, Be clear and concise with your doctor about what happened to you. Some doctors will go, oh, it's probably a drive-by, and they have no reason to believe that. I've read accounts of it. A guy that was bit by a very large timber rattler in Georgia that went to the hospital, his arm is already swollen. This doctor's like, I don't know if we need to treat this with antivenom and risk it. I think it's a drive-by. This guy was an expert. He'd been dealing with snakes his whole life. This was a snake that he owned, a pet. He's like, no, it, it latched onto my arm, man. All right, I'm going to die. This is a seven-foot timber rattlesnake. It's a huge amount of venom. And finally, he got treatment, and uh, they brought in a venom specialist to take care of him. You may have to be very assertive with a doctor if you're bitten by a snake, but get there and get there quickly. That's that's the best thing that you can do. Don't panic. Do not panic. Panicking accelerates everything in your body, and it's more likely to cause you death. In certain instances, you may have to break the rules. I have a good friend that was down in South Texas. He was hunting out in the sawgrass uh, for rabbits and was bitten in the back of the leg by a huge diamondback rattler. And he practically ran to his car because he was so far away and managed to get to the hospital. He had another one of these, you know, idiot doctors that's not willing to accept what happened to him and uh, delayed treatment. And he had pictures of his leg when they had to basically cut the skin and let it open to deal with the swelling. They were absolutely gruesome. Uh, But he probably saved his life by moving quickly, where in most instances you wouldn't want to move quickly. So you have to make your own determinations. I've also seen an account of a guy that was out on an island in a kayak all by himself and got bit by a rattler and had to to row himself to shore and basically passed out when he got there. But had he not taken that step, he probably would have died. Uh, So the rules are the rules, but they're also there to be bent or broken when they're needed to be. But panic is always bad. Both of these individuals, while they had to exert themselves physically harder than they should have, did not panic. They did not freak out. Panic will accelerate death in a snake bite situation. Understand that very few people actually die of snake bites in the United States of America. Very few. So even if you're bit, the odds of you actually dying are not that great, especially if you go immediately and get medical treatment. I hear stories all the time, well, you know, Bubba shot a snake and saved my life. Well, he probably didn't save your life. He probably, you know, if it was really a venomous snake, he probably saved you from an unpleasant experience, but he didn't save your life. If it was a comrade, he definitely didn't save your life. He saved you from a painful experience. 
and, and good for Bubba. But let's not over-dramatize these situations. If a dog kills a snake, let's not call the dog a hero that saved somebody's life uh, because most people don't die of snake bite. And those that do are usually, you know, usually they're dumb. All right, uh, and, and they they don't go get treatment. They're really dumb, and they you know get multiple bites because they keep messing with the animal after it bites them the first time. Or they're completely stupid, like the idiot up in Washington State that put a rattlesnake in his mouth and it bit him in the throat and closed off his airways from the swelling, and he lived. And if he would have died, I mean, I just could have had no sympathy for that idiot. So don't over-dramatize that. Now, one additional piece of advice I've got for you, if you have dogs, believe it or not, the dogs actually can handle a bite from a snake a lot better than a person does. Their body chemistry is different, and they react differently to it. It's still a very traumatic experience, but there's a, now a vaccine for rattlesnake bites that you can get for your dog, and it may save your dog's life or limb. So if you have dogs that run out in the country or you live in an area with a lot of snakes, you might want to talk to your veterinarian about getting your dog a snake vaccine. And uh, it is available and it's effective. Uh, He can't give you one. It doesn't work on humans. It's for for animals only. Um, Last note on the misidentification and senseless killing of animals. Consider this my my public service announcement of the week. There's no need to go out and start killing snakes. And and anybody that's out there going, oh, good snake's a dead snake. I challenge you, I challenge you as one human being to another to try to overcome your ignorance seriously. And I don't say that to be rude. And I don't say ignorance is a way of making fun of you. I say it as ignorance is a lack of knowledge. And the only reason people feel that way is because they don't have enough knowledge about the situation. Go on Google and learn the few species of rattlesnake and or other snakes that are venomous in your area. Know how to identify them and understand if it's not one of those, it's not a threat. Leave it alone. And if it is a threat, you probably can leave it alone anyway. And if it's an area where it could be a threat to animals or children or other other people that would be unknowing, and you have to make a choice to kill it, kill it because you have to, not because only oh, good snake's dead snake. And then understand this is a big one. All water snakes are not cottonmouths, all right? And just because it's a big, dark-colored snake in the water doesn't mean it's a cottonmouth, and it probably is not. I fish on a lake I've mentioned before in some other shows called Joe Pool. There's a lot of creeks and coves, and in the summertime you see water snakes all over. Very large uh, green water snakes, yellow water snakes, what's called a diamondback water snake. Don't confuse that with the rattler. Uh, these are completely harmless snakes. They're occupying a, a place in the ecosystem. I have not once, not once, seen a... Um, Godmouth or moccasin, depending on your geographic location, what you call it, on this lake. Not one. And I talk to, you know, bass boat fishing rednecks all the time. It's like, man, there's moccasins everywhere here. So no, there's not. I've seen them. They're up there. They're not, they're not water moccasins. Yes, they are big and black, and they got a big head. Um, they're not, folks. And, you know, if you go look at a picture of a real moccasin and you see its head, it is so distinctive. The pits, the shape, the pointedness, the triangular uh, kind of angles of it. Uh, there is no snake with a head like that other than a water moccasin or cottonmouth, again, depending on what you call them. And a lot of these other snakes are big. They, they look similar, and they do that for a reason, because it, it keeps them alive because they're less likely to be attacked by a predator. 
I did an interesting experiment one time on a fishing form, and uh, people were talking about illumined snakes and dead snake, and I put up a page with five or six pictures of snakes and said, can you identify which one is the water moccasin? And it varied from one or two uh, to all of them to it's this one, or I know at least this one is. And then I revealed the truth, and not a single one of them were a water moccasin. Not one. Not one cottonmouth in the bunch. They were all the same species of snake. They were all diamondback water snakes in various color phases and ages. So the big thing about water snakes is if they're in the water and you're not swimming in there with them, the odds are getting bitter very low. Uh, so, you know, stay away from that. You folks that live in the swamplands that end up in some, you know, rather dangerous positions with cottonmouths, and they are an aggressive snake when they feel cornered, and I understand. I grew up in Jacksonville. We had lots of cottonmouths in the swamps around Jacksonville, so I understand that you may end up in a situation where you're taking a snake's head off with some dust shot from a 22 or with a machete because you're a couple feet away and you don't feel you can extract yourself. So I'm not saying not to kill the things at all. I'm just saying and don't just go out and senselessly kill anything. It doesn't make any sense to senselessly kill anything. There's a guy named Robert Rourke that wrote a book called Use Enough Gun, and he talks about a guy named Harry Selby, who is probably the most famous professional hunter that Africa has ever seen. And what Harry's view on killing was to kill anything for no reason other than to kill it is a sin. This is a guy that's probably killed more elephants that most people have eaten grains of corn in their life, all right? And that's how he felt. And I've always remembered that statement because I feel the same way. You want to go out and eat garter snakes, I don't care, you know, if there's a reason behind it. Uh, But if you just learn to identify what's in your area, take the approach of leaving them alone. 99% of the time you'll avoid any kind of unpleasant confrontation. If you are bit or if someone around you is bitten, don't start freaking out. Keep yourself calm or keep them calm. Uh, expediently get them medical attention. And 99 times out of 100, they're going to end up being just fine. Uh, remember this statistic. Um, it's, oh, it's true that over 80% of snake bites in the United States are on the hands or arms. And snakes generally spend their time on the ground. So most people that are bit are people that try to pick up the snake. So the snake is usually only a threat when we do something dumb. And hopefully that will keep you safe out there. And I promise you that part of living a better life is not getting yourself envenomated by a venomous animal. This has been Jack Spirico with the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent. 